today on the Harusa podcast, debuting a new season where we answer and explore the questions, why be a Jew? Why should you continue the Jewish story? And what happened that so many Jews are opting out of it? I'm Moshe Shomron. Thank you for joining me in this exploration of timeless wisdom and ideas that have guided some of history's greatest men and women for over 3,000 years. To begin, yesterday, Sunday, was a particularly sorrowful day full of sorrow uh, for the Jewish people as many uh, rabbis, leaders um, died and passed on, passed away. Um, Rabbi Dr. Avram Yeshua Tversky, Abraham Tversky, who not only was a prolific author and he healer, uh, for thousands and thousands of people um, specialized in addictions and mental illnesses and physical illnesses. He was just a, an incredible uh, doctor, but also an incredible spiritual advisor and such a humble, humble person. Uh, he had his trademark ties. He would just wear his Snoopy ties and whatnot. He's like a Hasidic Jew comes from a scion of a Hasidic dynasty and he had zero qualms about him didn't care what people thought of him introduced himself as Tversky signed off his letters Tversky if you hearken back in the Chavrusa podcast when the doctor controversy came up and we were discussing the the idea of the title of doctor and the giving people the respect we should always try to give people as much respect as we can, but for the person themselves to insist on a title, and we were applying it in, in the realm of rabbis, how certain rabbis lead with the, the fact that I'm rabbi this, rabbi that, that's how they'll introduce him. Here's Rabbi Dr. Avram Tversky, Abram Tversky, who's world-renowned in, in all sorts of fields and specializations, introduces himself as Tversky. Uh, someone sent the message to me that he knew Rabbi Tversky and he had been going through a um, personal struggle, crisis and he reached out to Dr. Tversky because he knew about him and he responded and he was surprised, he responded right away like this is a, a world famous luminary and he invited him to come to his home at the time in New Jersey and he went to his home and he spent three hours uh, consulting with him and advising him and encouraging him. This is a total stranger. He's giving three hours of his time for, he wasn't charging him. He wasn't gaining any uh, profit from it. He just wanted to help a fellow, fellow human. Um, unbelievable in, in his sheer humility and also in his accomplishments um, in this world. Uh, another rabbi that passed away yesterday was Rabbi Yislik Shiner. He was head of the Yeshiva in Panovich. In, in Kamenetz in, in Israel. Well, the issue initially started in Kamenetz, which is in Poland, but then after uh, the Nazis wreaked havoc and um, expelled the Jews out of Poland, Rav Shiner, um, the yeshiva emigrated to Israel, and then Rav Shiner, he was the Rosh Shiva there. Um, another amazing person of character and integrity um, what's a cool feature of his story is that he was enrolled in University of Pittsburgh and planning on attending, uh, but he also really wanted to 
go to yeshiva to learn Torah in Israel. He was uh, an American boy at the time. And he had this back and forth, wasn't sure what to do, and ultimately made that choice, which was tough at the time, um, to go to Israel to learn it. Eventually, not only did he succeed in his learning, but his, uh, his wisdom became renowned, and he has thousands and thousands and thousands of students that have gained from him and, and uh, were influenced by that one decision that, should I go, should I not go? You know, at the time when you have that short-term vision, it seems like, you know, uh, you get sort of a tunnel focus, and then you look back and you look at his life. It's, it's incredible. Uh, the impact of that one decision. Uh, Rabbi David Salvechik, who's Roshiva in Brisk, another town in Europe that Yeshiva eventually emigrated to Yerushalayim, to Jerusalem, Rabbi David Salvechik, a scion of the Salvechik family, who we've mentioned many times throughout the Chavrusa podcast, also passed away Sunday. Rafami um, Tai, who was uh, Rosh Yeshiva in another Yeshiva in, in Israel. So it was a tough day, and uh, there's there's a void of of leadership, of Torah learning, of of chesed, of kindness towards fellow Jews, and it's up to us to replenish that stock and push ourselves maybe a little bit more in their merit to give out more kindness in the world and more Torah and more inspiration. One more thing we talked about Rabbi Dr. Tversky's humility. Now, he asked that nobody should give eulogies on him. Again, part of just, this is who he was. But he did say he had composed a song in his life, and it became a popular song, and it's sung at many different weddings and events. So he said, don't eulogize me, but sing the song. Sing my song. That should be my final uh, influence on the world that I caused Jews to sing in that. What a person. It is a very exciting day on the Kavrusa podcast. Number one is because we hit a thousand plays since the inception of the podcast. Hit a thousand plays today. So that's a cool milestone. Not that it means much because it's more just about the uh, individual Kavrusa's conversations and connections that have been uh, ongoing since the beginning, but it's just uh, cool to mark a milestone. And number two is because we're starting a new text today, a new text. The initial tagline when we started the Chavrusa podcast was exceptional text through a contemporary lens, and we have now finished the two texts. Number one was Capturing the Light, Hanukkah Barabe, Emmanuel Bernstein. The second one was Living in the Presence, Guide for Jewish Mindfulness in Everyday Living by Dr. Benjamin Epstein. And today we embark on a new journey, this time A Letter in the Scroll by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Now there's a saying in the world that your fav- favorite Rabbi Jonathan Sachs book or the best book that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs was a prolific author published and you have a lot to choose from. You have a letter in the scroll. You have his incredible, wide-ranging commentary on the Torah called Covenant and Conversation. You have ethics, essays in ethics and leadership. You have 
dignity of difference. You have uh, the great partnership, Judaism and science. Crisis and Covenant, his most recent, his last book was Morality. The favorite book, though, the best one is the first one you read. When you're first introduced to not only his style of writing, but his, his breath with a deep breath of thought and the penetrating wisdom and his combining of Torah ideals with, with wisdom from all variety of sources. Uh, it's just incredible. And Leather in the Scroll, when I first read it in my introduction to Rabbi Sachs, it really, it really helped me see a picture of Judaism, the Jewish story, and really answering the question of what does it mean to be a Jew? What does it mean to be Jewish? And it's incredible because he writes in the prologue to the book, or the preface, preface, preface to the book, as to why he's writing the book. And he says that there are a couple of people, um, Jewish university students that were talking to him and they were planning out for their course for the next year, next semester. And they were wondering what theme might he suggest they write about. So he thinks, and he says, you know, I've got an idea. There are a lot of Jews today doing really super interesting and significant things. There's artists, academics, judges, doctors, politicians, head of nonprofits, writers, journalists. There, there's lots of different Jews in all different fields. You know, the sciences and in psychology and in 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 the nonprofit space. So how about write to all these Jews and ask them? Because in their line of work, they must have many different questions of of, uh, you know, moral dilemmas and ethical situations and ask them, like, what does Judaism mean to them? And once you get all their, once you collect all that information, all their, their wisdom collectively, then compare it with some of the more classic statements of the past of Jewish figures in the past and, uh, contrast against the Torah and the different definitions. And that way you can both listen to the voices in the past and the present and construct a, a beautiful series of discussions on what being a Jew might mean to you. And the students are very excited because it's an awesome idea, right? It's a super cool idea. So a couple of months passed and Rabbi Sachs hasn't heard anything back. So he reaches back out to the students and is like, what's going on? Like, uh, how's the project going? So they, they said we sent out over 200 letters but we only got six replies, okay? And three of them were as follows, and he writes them. He says, the first one came from a famous and distinguished Jewish academic, and he wrote, I'm quite incapable of writing even a short passage of what being a Jew means to me. I think about it in the same sense of having two legs, arms, eyes. It's an attribute, something I take for granted as belonging to me. I'm neither proud or embarrassed of it. I'm just a Jew. It never occurred to me I could be anything else. So the question, why be Jewish, is something I can't answer any more than why be alive or why be two-legged. That was one answer. Second answer came from a noted Jewish writer who writes, Jewishness is a source of comfort and reassurance to me. It gives me a sense of belonging to a proud and ancient community. But all that is entirely due to the fact that I was brought up as a Jew. I have no doubt that I would have felt the same had I been brought up as a Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, Buddhist, or Hatentat. I don't know what that is. Hatentat. Okay, and the third came from an Israeli who's a very prominent 
in public life, in both in Israel and in the diaspora. And he writes, one of the most interesting definitions of Judaism that I know is something that I heard a number of years ago from a young Israeli boy. Judaism, he said, is a, is a hereditary illness. You get it from your parents. You also pass it along to your children. Why call it an illness, I asked. He answered, because not a small number of people have died from it. So these were three of their six responses in the students. And Robert Zach says, to be honest, so did I. They, they felt super let down. Three Jews, none of them hostile to Judaism or the Jewish people. They were committed Jews, famous for their defense of Jewish values. And they're taking the time to write the message. It wasn't just that they were like the other 190-something people that ignored the message, but they're taking the time to respond and what Judaism means to them. And the message is very strangely ambivalent. It's very powerful. Right, the first two are just saying, like, I happen to have been born Jewish. It's it's who I am. I don't know. Like, this is how I was brought up. And the third, it's even worse than an accident. It's an illness. So <laughs> there's not a lot you can build a course on uh, from these type of responses. So the next time Rabbi Sachs is talking to the students, he says, now we're going to contrast it to what some non-Jews, some voices that are reflecting on Judaism and the Jewish people. And he first reads to them the words of the great Russian novelist Leo. Tolstoy. Tolstoy writes, the Jew is the sacred being who has brought down from heaven the everlasting fire and has illumined with it the entire world. He's the religious source, spring, and fountain out of which all the rest of peoples have drawn their beliefs and religions. That's Tolstoy. 19th century American president John Adams writes, I will insist that the Hebrews have done more to civilize man than any other nation. If I were atheist and believed in blind eternal fate, I should still believe that fate had ordained the Jews to be the most essential instrument for civilizing the nations. If I were atheist of, a, of the other sect who believe or pretend to believe that all is ordered by chance, I should believe that chance had ordered the Jews to, pre, to preserve and propagate to all mankind the doctrine of a supreme, intelligent, wise, almighty sovereign of the universe, which I believe to be the great essential principle of all morality and consequently of all civilization. Then he reads Paul Johnson, a contemporary historian. All the great conceptual discoveries of the intellect seem obvious and inescapable once they have been revealed. Any any cool ideas like, oh, yeah, that's an awesome idea. So simple, so uh, cool, Uber, Airbnb, etc. But it requires a special genius to formulate these ideas for the first time. The Jews had this gift. To them, we owe the idea of equality before the law, both divine and human of the sanctity of life and the dignity of the human person, of the individual conscience and so of personal redemption, of the collective conscience and so of social responsibility, of peace as an abstract ideal and love as the foundation of justice, and many other items which constitute the basic moral furniture of the human mind. Without the Jews, it might have been a much emptier emptier place. So these are quite astonishing accolades coming from objective voices discussing the Jewish people. So what's so confounding is, is that here you have such a strange contrast between non-Jews commenting on Judaism and seeing it as something so extraordinary, yet Jews themselves going to such extraordinary lengths to deny it or to claim uh, it as just another ordinary virtue. Um, and it becomes so clear that there's 
such heavy confusion and demoralization at the heart of the contemporary Jew. And you begin to wander into some of the most perplexing questions about Jewish existence, both now and in the past. And you discover how hard it's been, it's become hard for a Jew, a, a Jew of today to say why they are a Jew and why, even if they do say they are a Jew, why they want the Jewish story to continue. If it's just that I was born this way, so I was born in New York, I was a Jets fan, then I moved to Arizona, became a Cardinals fan. Now, I guess I could follow the Washington football team or the Ravens, sort of equidistant distant to, to either of them. I mean, I guess I'm just not as passionate about football anymore, but that that's the question. Like, if it's just because you're born that way, so then why do you want it to continue? And it begins to bring up this ultimate question of why I am a Jew. What does it mean to be a Jew? For a very long time in history, the answer was that the question never started. The question wasn't there in the first place because you were part of a chain. You were part of a, a story uh, dating back centuries to ancient times. You inherited something from people that came before you. You lived it and you handed it on to the next generation. You were a link in the chain of generations. But what happens when the chain begins to rust and the chain begins to break when the continuity of Judaism and the Jewish people can't be taken for granted anymore? At, at such moments, these questions become unavoidable. Who are we? What is the story that we're a part of? And why were our ancestors so determined that it should continue? Why? Why did they sacrifice their lives time and time again? Our great-great-grandparents went through extraordinary, unbelievable conditions. It's unimaginable what they went through to pass on this story, the lengths that they went through. Why was it so important? What was it? What's the answer? The end of Moses' life, Moshe, Jewish people, it's the end of the Torah, the end of Deuteronomy. The people are about to cross over into the land of Israel. Moshe is not going to go with them. Sadly, and to his great chagrin, he wasn't privileged to enter the land of Israel. And he's giving his final speech to his people. His people that he led out of Egypt, out of slavery. To begin the long journey towards freedom. And it was a tough 40 years in the desert. Started off great after leaving Egypt, splitting of the sea, and then reaching Sinai, the revelation of Hashem to every single person of the Jewish people, the values, the Torah, the, the ethics, the mitzvot that Jewish people were privileged to receive. And then afterwards, it was followed by a lot of quarrel and betrayal. But, Moshe kept by the side of his people throughout. And he's giving them one final speech. And he says, I ask of you. I instruct you. Teach this to your kids. Teach these values. Teach these ethics. These mitzvot. Give them over to your children. Speak about them. When you're at home. When you're traveling. When you're sitting. When you're standing. Teach it over. Give over the eternal message. You're the carriers. You're the one that's going to have an effect not only on you and on your children, but on the entire world. But only if you take this on upon yourself to, to give it over to the next people. And right before that, Moshe prefaces it by saying, 
You have to love Hashem with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And 16th century commentator Rabbi Moshe Alshech of Tzfas. Moshe Alshech points out that they're juxtaposed, these two things. If you want to really give over a message, you got to love it. You can't just teach and give over a subject matter and a curriculum, but you got to live it. you got to love it. We can only pass on to our children what we ourselves love. You cannot order somebody to be Jews. You can't deprive them of their choice, nor should we, and nor should we try to turn them into clones. All we could do to the next generation is to show them what we believe and see the beauty of it. See how satisfied and content and happy a life of Judaism can be. As the English poet Wordsworth said, what we love, others will love, and we will show them how. So only our children and grandchildren and students and friends can make that choice. And we hope that they they make the most uh, amazing choices that bring them the most overflowing happiness in life. But what we could tell them is our story, where we come from, where our ancestors were traveling to, why it was important to them that they should carry on the journey, that we should carry on their journey. It's our story, but it's unfinished yet. And there's a chapter that only they could write. Now, on the question of why I should be a Jew, that question is really rooted in a halachic framework, in a legal framework, because there's a basic legal concept that anytime two parties make a deal, you make a pledge to each other, you're making a covenant, it's a contract, you need mutual consent from both parties. If one party is under duress, one party is coerced into that decision, into that deal, it is not binding by law, by halacha. Now, here's the thing. The Jewish people entered into a covenant with Hashem, entered into a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. But, I wasn't there. We weren't there physically. So then how is the deal binding on us? So the question then becomes not only what does it mean to be a Jew, but why should I be a Jew? Why is it binding on me? What's the story? What's the obligation? Now, if you look in the Torah and Parshas Nitzavim, at the end of Deuteronomy, it says, The covenant was constructed even with the people that were not there today, with all future generations, were included in the covenant. Now the question is, how can we be included in the covenant if we didn't actively give our consent? Now, if it was a clear-cut benefit for us, so then you could include somebody in a deal if they're deriving 100% benefit. So even if you don't consent, I could gift you, say, hundred dollars and that will take effect the money will actually go over into your property um, even without your consent because it's a pure a pure profit whereas being a jew it's undoubtedly a benefit 100 percent, it is but it could also be demanding there's 613 mitzvot there are restriction obligations that you wouldn't have if you weren't a jew so you cannot 
then impose the status on the person without their explicit consent. But that's what seemed to be what was happening um, on, those, on the banks of the Jordan River there, where Moshe says this covenant is going to be binding on all Jews, those that were here, those that were not here. So how does that work? And Rabbi Yitzchak Arama, in the 1500s, is sitting in his study. He's writing, he's preparing his uh, commentary on the Torah, Kedas Yitzchak. And he's puzzled by this. And he has this question, how does this work? How does the covenant include people that are not yet here? And the the Torah, the tradition is, Midrash and Shirashirim talks about this, that all the Jewish souls were there. All souls from all future generations were there. So we were there, our neshamas were there. But, he says, that still doesn't help because you need to have a... Right now, we're not just souls. We're physical beings. We have a soul within a body. And our body never then uh, spoke doors of consent. So how does the covenant work? Now, this question is very interesting. It was asked by Rabbi Sagarama in the 1500s in Spain, or the aftermath of the Spanish expulsion. I don't know if he actually wrote it when he was in Spain. He started writing it. But it was during that time period where it was, it was not easy to be a Jew. The Jews were being, by threat of death, expelled from the land, um, where they were living and their families going to be sent into a dark exile with no hopes, with no viable plan to continue. It was pretty dark times. And if you look in history, throughout all the Jewish texts that that we have access to a wealth of, of knowledge and wisdom. This question pops up in, in four specific time periods, very specific. Over the course of thousands of years, it pops up in four times, and each time was when there was a significant crisis uh, of, of Judaism. First time was after the exile of Babylon, when the first temple was destroyed, and half the Jewish people, or more than half, 10 tribes were assimilated and disappeared into northern, um, in the northern kingdom. And Yechezkel, Ezekiel, the prophet, uh, reports that there were Jews arguing, saying, we want to just be like everybody else, like the nations, like the other peoples of the earth. They no longer wanted to be Jews. The second time, after the destruction of the second temple and the later persecutions by the Romans, as the Talmud records, that people were saying that we shouldn't, we, we, we shouldn't get married, we shouldn't have children, so that the seed of Avraham, the seed of Abraham, will come to an end of its own accord. We should make this decree. So great were their sufferings that we should simply just not continue the Jewish story. Then the question for the third time picks back up in Spain. Where Akedas Yitzchak is writing this question, and we're Don Isaac Abarbanel, the Barbanel, who's a contemporary of Rabbi Arama who is perhaps the most distinguished Jew of his time, who is the treasurer to King Alfonso V of Portugal. He was a member of King Ferdinand's, Ferdinand's and Isabel's, Isabella's um, court as well. The treasurer, he's an outstanding uh, scholar and author. His commentary on the Torah is my personal uh, go-to every single Shabbos. It's amazing stuff. Um, and even he writes, he wrote a uh, journal of his travels because he was expelled from Portugal. He was expelled from Spain. He escaped to Naples where he wrote a commentary on the Agada. Um, and in the commentary to the Agada, in one of his many 
tragic years of exile, um, he wrote that he got to a point where he felt that all the prophecies about redemption and salvation, they're all false. They seem to be false. They're not happening. It seems like they were all lies. It seems to, there was so much despair that was unprecedented until uh, in those thousands of years just from the temple. Um, until then, in Spain, in 1493, there was such a crisis, and that's why it's fascinating that it appears in, in Rabbi Arama's commentary on the Torah and in the Barbanel's writing, like, how is this covenant binding? These questions are being asked because it's reaching a point in crisis and the fourth time. Obviously, also, the Spain expulsion was following a whole bunch of anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish events that were happening in Spain. Whereas there, there was the debate with the Ramban in the 1200s uh, that they called in Nachmanides to debate um, the, the Christian point of view uh, on religion, and he won the debate and was consequent, consequentially exiled from Spain. In 1391, riots exploded um, where throughout Spain, burning synagogues, uh, looting Jewish houses, businesses, killing Jews. At the same time, in the same time phase in, in history in Yemen, where Maimonides um, responds to the community that writes to him because there is the fanatical Shiite Muslim movement that was threatening to wipe out any Jew that didn't convert to Islam. And many did convert, but even from, even after that, it didn't stop it. The fourth time, tragically, in our own times. Fast forward a couple hundred years in the Holocaust. The crescendo of anti-Semitism throughout Europe culminates in the, the horrific tragedy. Where the question again is asked, where's Hashem? Where's God? Where's the covenant? What happened there? From a Jewish perspective, crisis is experienced when there's a widespread feeling that the covenant between Israel and Hashem has collapsed. Now, Hashem had promised the Jewish people would survive, but this promise for four times, it's 4,000 years, um, seems in doubt, the survival's in doubt. The Babylonian conquest, the Roman persecution, the Spanish expulsion, and the Holocaust could have easily brought an end to the Jewish people. In the first two instances, the Jewish people lost their sovereignty. In the third, they lost hope of finding any sort of security in the diaspora. And in the fourth, one-third of Jews lost their lives. And what haunts us today, Rabbi Sachs points out, what haunts us today is that it's not over. The fourth crisis didn't end at the end of the war. But it continues in a new and troubling form. At present, throughout communities, throughout the United States, throughout the broader diaspora, more than one in every two Jews is in effect deciding not to continue the Jewish story. Not to continue not to live a Jewish life, to marry another Jew, to have Jewish children and grandchildren. More than half of Jews are not participating in the story. Jewish identity in today's world is no longer fate, but it's become a choice. It's be it went from a fact of birth to a consciously chosen commitment and significant, significant numbers, rising numbers of young Jews are evidently unwilling to make that commitment. And the future of the Jewish people is once again at risk. This time, without 
the backdrop of an external persecution. This time it's happening internally. And the question, why be Jewish, is being raised again, but this time in a searching form, in an internal form. A question that we could all ask ourselves, what's the answer? Now it is true that as Rabbi Rama and the Barbanel discuss that it's an inescapable notion. Meaning it's not always just a, a choice that one can make and say, I'm giving it up. Because you see, even the Jews that uh, converted to Christianity in Spain uh, were still targeted. And not just targeted, but, but tortured by the Spanish Inquisition well into the 18th century. And they were barred from public office. And in Germany, it was the same. The Jews that were the most assimilated, even converted, were still hated. And suffered an inescapable fate. So it has a, a tragic measure of, of historical truth to it. But at the end of the day, it, it fails to do justice to the proposition at the very heart of Torah, at the very heart of Judaism, is that Hashem wants the free human choice of human beings. That while while there is a concept of fate, but there's a priority for faith, of freedom, that the answer is up to us, that, that there's there's something to it, that when Hashem offered um, Avraham to go on this journey, he calls on Avraham to to go on this journey, go on this journey to the promised land, and he calls on Moshe to begin the process of the exodus, they were free to decline. And at many points along the way, they had doubts. But somehow, for some reason, they had a vision. The vision that they were presented, the vision that they saw was compelling, not because of its coercive force, but because of its moral beauty. They saw something there, there's something there. And we want to retrace and capture what is it? What is that story? What is the beautiful spiritual grace that's here? How, how can we tap into it? And to do that, we need to answer three questions. There's three questions, and that will be the journey here on the Chafusa podcast throughout the next couple of episodes to get here. First one, first question is, who am I? Who am I? What are the claims of Jewish identity on me? Not just what, what, what are a set of moral and spiritual values that Judaism offers, Right? Not just a, a vision or a way of life, but how does it call to me personally? First person singular. That's the question. That's really the question that Rabbi Arama was struggling in Spain in 500 years ago. How could an ancient covenant have impositions and call on me personally? How can the past bind the present? The second question is, who are we? Who are we? What's the nature of the collective Jewish journey? What makes it different from other journeys, from other faiths, from other ways of relating to the world? And not just what makes it different, but what makes it exhilarating and enlarging and a journey that if we would be given a chance to take part of it, not only would we politely decline, but we'd, we'd jump into it. We'd, we'd jump at the chance to be a part of it. And the third question is, how did we lose our weight? Because if there is such a journey, 
and more than half of Jews today are not choosing to take it. We want to get, we want to understand why. Is it that they discovered something new that previous generations didn't know? Something more compelling? Or did they simply lose something? They lost something along the way. And why did they lose it? Answering these three questions is going to be the journey. It's perhaps not a straightforward journey because uh, a Jewish journey doesn't go straight. It leans, as we spoke about in the last episode in the Chavrusa podcast, fried matzo balls and unethical distribution. We lean throughout history, we zigzag, but it's journey through a, a series of radical ideas, still not fully understood, radical ideas. And along the way, it could be discovered as what it is to be a Jew, also, no less significantly, what it is to be human. And that's the journey we'll take. And uh, hope you could join with me on it. With the huge thanks and gratefulness to some supporters of the Chavrusa podcast, we have available a couple of copies of the book, A Letter in the Scroll, that if you'd like to join us, and learning with it and having a text base that you can follow along with us as we learn through the Kavrusa podcast, discussing different ideas and mixing in some contemporary cultural happenings and musings and takes, uh, please, please reach out and we'll be able to send you one and uh, have that connection of ideas and discussion. So looking forward for that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Chavrusa podcast. If you have any questions, any comments, any ideas, please reach out and share. My number is 347-893-4467. Or you can email chavrusapodcast at gmail.com or reach me at Moshe Shomran at any of my social media pages. Thank you so much again for joining me in this exploration of timeless ideas and wisdom and deep stuff. All the best.